Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. So we will continue today in week three of our series, Outsiders. And we are looking at people from the book of Acts who are not really Christians, and some of them are not Jews. Today, there is an example of someone who's a a Jew, but he's an outsider to the faith, uh, really antagonistic toward the faith. And so we're going to look today at an origin story in week three of Outsiders. Now, of course, as the name would imply, an origin story, it just goes behind the scenes of someone or something or under the surface to learn how something began. And where that's really popular nowadays, uh, the last maybe 15, 20 years, is with superheroes. A lot of new superhero movies kind of get to the origin story of how this classic character that we all know came about. So an example of that is Spider-Man. You probably know his origin story, but let's go through it really quick. Uh, So he's just a regular teenager going to high school, and of course, he's bitten by a radioactive spider. There's always that element in there that's just so fantastical. It could only work in a comic book. And so he's bitten, Peter Parker is this teenager, bitten by this spider, and he discovers he now has these supernatural abilities. He has agility and strength and speed and balance, and he can climb walls, which is kind of a neat thing to have. But then, of course, tragedy has to happen in the origin story of the character. His, he's raised by his aunt and uncle, so he's already had some tragedy where his parents have been killed. And then on top of that, his uncle Ben is murdered. Um, and so then he uses, he's going to, I'm going to use these powers for good. I'm going to use these powers to fight crime. And so he becomes Spider-Man. That's his origin story. So today in our origin story, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9, and we're going to meet someone that we've met before. We're going to meet someone that we will, in the rest of Acts, uh, really next year, is going to be the focal point of the book of Acts. But it starts out in Acts chapter 9 here. We've already really seen it before. We'll get to that as we begin here. But we're going to look at the origin story of the Apostle Paul, one of the most, I would say, other under Jesus, the most influential Christian who ever lived. Really one of the most influential people on Western culture, period. His writings, his philosophy, his way of thinking, his way of communicating, his work that he did has ripple effects even to this day. And so his origin story, as we'll look at, sort of has an interesting uh, view, an interesting part to it, several interesting parts that we'll discover today. We are going to refer to him as Saul today. Uh, So it's not that this moment we're going to look at in Acts 9, he he doesn't have a name change. God doesn't change his name. Saul is his Hebrew name. He's a Jew, as we'll see. That's his Hebrew name. Paul is the Greek version of the name Saul. It's the same name, just one is a Hebrew version, one is a Greek version. Um, Saul, as we'll see a little bit today and then later on as we get to know him more next year, um, he is both a Jew and also a Roman citizen. So, And then as he's commissioned to reach non-Jews with the gospel, uses his non-Jewish name. So we'll call him Saul. If I say Paul, we all know I'm talking about the same guy, but if I slip into that, uh, we'll know. So we're going to look at the origin story of Saul today. We're going to start in Acts chapter 9, sort of an action scene at the beginning of, of the story of Saul here, and look at how Jesus changed his life. Acts chapter 9, let's read it starting at verse number 1. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath, 
and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogue in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. That's people that belong to Jesus. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. As I said at the beginning, we've already been introduced to Saul in the book of Acts. Back at the end of chapter 7, when this this church leader named Stephen uh, is stoned to death, it says Saul was there, and they threw their, the men who were stoning him took their cloaks off and threw them at the feet of Saul. At the beginning of Acts chapter 8, it says he stood, he looked on approvingly of the stoning, the murder of Stephen. And then also in Acts 8, then he begins his rampage that continues in Acts 9 of persecuting the church. In Acts 8, it was limited to just Jerusalem. He's like, I'm going to tear this church to shreds. I'm in the epicenter here. I'm, gonna, I'm going to destroy this movement. And so this is where Paul is at this point in Acts chapter 9. He's already tried to make problems in the church in Jerusalem, and now he's moving on to other parts where the church has scattered. He's going to scatter, and he's going to go and try to destroy any remnant the church there might be. So as we look at his origin story, we're going to look today at three misconceptions that Saul had about himself that led him to where he is at this point and how Jesus changed those. Because sometimes in an origin story like in Spider-Man, at the beginning when Peter Parker has these cool, unique things he can do, he's kinda, he kind of misuses them. He uses them, oh, this is cool, this is neat, I'm going to do this, and I can do that. But then when something happens that changes his life, he finds out, oh, no, that's not the point of these powers after all. I can use them for a different purpose, a better purpose. Saul had a similar thing here. There were three things that he thought about himself that, he turned, that turned out were totally wrong. And Jesus, in this moment, on this road to Damascus, exposed him. For being wrong. So we'll look at these three things and see what we can learn from them this morning. Here's the first thing that Saul thought about himself. First, Saul thought he was right. He genuinely believed he was doing God's will and destroying the church of Jesus Christ. You have to remember that the, the church, the first century church, these Christians are Jewish Christians. This comes primarily at the beginning, the first several years, of mainly Jews who turn to their Jewish Messiah and kind of start this, what is now becoming sort of this new religion or an offshoot religion. And so Saul's mindset here is, I have to stop this. They're destroying our tradition. They're going against our, our laws. They're doing things that, the, that our scriptures do not approve of. They believe in this Messiah who's a false Messiah because he was crucified, and I, I know that he you know, did these false miracles, and God was not with him. God was not upon him, and so they're putting their faith in him, and this is not right, and we see this, that the original, remember earlier in Acts, the original opposition to the church, this new movement, is not the outside pagan unbelieving world. It's the Jewish leaders trying to stop this movement, and Saul definitely fits that description. We'll read a few verses about his origin story here uh, at the outset. So in Acts 22, years later, Paul is recounting his conversion story, 
And here's what he says. This is Acts 22, uh, 3 and 4. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, and I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. As his student, I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and customs. I became very zealous to honor God in everything I did, just like all of you today. And I persecuted the followers of the way, hounding some to death, arresting both men and women, and throwing them in prison. Paul, or Saul, thought he was right. He sees this new uprising as a cult, as a thing that must be stopped, as cancer that is spreading in the community, taking true believers of our one true God out and believing in this false God that they claim is their Messiah, Jesus. And so he has this thought here that this is a mockery of our tradition. It's going, it's a blasphemy against our law. So they must be stopped. And then in a letter he writes later on in his life, here's how another way he describes himself. This is Philippians 3, 5, and 6. Paul writes, I was circumcised when I was eight days old, I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to Jewish law. I was so zealous, there's that word again, I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Saul thought he was right. These people must be stopped. They are a problem. They are a threat. I have to stop them. And who better than me to stop them? He lists his credentials, both in Acts 22, later in Acts 26, and here in Philippians 3. He says, I was trained under the top rabbi, maybe one of the top who ever lived, Gamaliel, who we saw earlier in Acts, remember? He was the one that told, that told the Jewish council, hey, leave these men alone. If, you're fighting, if, if they're not of God, this movement will fail. But if they are of God, then you're fighting against God. And as Saul, he goes against his teacher's, you know, advice and says, nope, I'm going to wipe them out no matter what. They have to be stopped, and I'm the guy to do it. He, so he was trained under the top rabbi, the best Ivy League education a Hebrew could get at the time. He's the star pupil in the class of Gamaliel. He's super zealous. He says it over and over. I was zealous. I was committed. I was, I, he said, if there was ever a perfect Jew, I'm that guy. That's who he said he was. He was a respected up-and-coming leader. So Saul's like, not only do they need to be stopped, but I'm going to lead the charge. I'm going to set the example in order to do that. He thought he was right. He feels like if, you're, if your country is under attack, you go to war. If you're attacked, you fight back. If they're, if they're encroaching on your territory, you resist. That's Saul's mindset. I'm leading the charge to stop this movement. He really believed that. And then in Acts 26, he says, I really believe this. Let's read this again, Acts 26, verse 9. I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus the Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. He had some success there. Authorized by the leading priest, I caused many believers there to be sent to prison, and I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. In this war that Saul is fighting, he thought he was the good guy. He was the hero of the story. He was doing God's will. And as he says here in Acts 26, you know, back in the day, there are no Geneva conventions. There's no war crimes. 
You, I can do whatever I want to whoever I want, whenever I want to get what I want. And that's what Saul says he did. He said, I punished and tortured them to get confessions. I violently opposed them, both men and women, which as we said a few weeks ago uh, in Acts 6, is a unique thing. It was, it was common to, to oppose the men, to imprison the men, to threaten and beaten and kill the men. But he's like, I'm getting rid of all of them. All of it. Men and women, I don't care if they belong to the way or I think they belong to the way, they're come with me until further notice. Or they're getting their head removed from their body. It doesn't matter. So, and then it said, if you go back to the beginning of what we read in Acts 9, it says he was breathing, breathing murderous threats. So the imagery that you can think of there is sort of a bull that's about to charge. He's getting into the dirt with his hooves and he's snorting. That's Saul's life. He's like, I am doing anything and everything I can to destroy this movement. He thought he was right. And then he says, I chased them down. He said, I had success in Jerusalem, and then they began to spread, so I had to spread to foreign cities. I had to go here and there and everywhere, every highway, everywhere I could go, I would chase them down because they're scattering, I've got to scatter. They're growing, I've got to stop them. But it was at this moment in Acts 9 on the road to to arrest Christians in Damascus where he meets Jesus, and his perception changes. His perspective changes changes. Everything that he thought he knew is turned completely upside down in a moment, in one encounter with Jesus. A blinding light, a voice from heaven, a vision of the resurrected Son of God changed everything about Saul's life, and he realized he thought he was right, but he was wrong. And here's what he says near the end of his life, writing a letter to a young minister named Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, chapter 1. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted his people, but God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. He realized after this moment in Acts 9, everything I thought was a positive is actually a negative. Everything I thought I knew about who Jesus was, was wrong. Everything that I built my life around was wrong. And so later on, we read this a few, couple weeks ago, and later in Philippians 3, he says, everything that I thought was a gain, I now count as loss. So much so that all these religious things I had done, all these boxes I had checked, all the accolades, all of the education, he said, I now count as dung in the surpassing knowledge of now knowing Jesus. All the stuff that was a highlight reel, I'm now ashamed that I ever did. All the things that I thought were right, I'm ashamed I ever thought. All the people that I persecuted and imprisoned and killed, man, if I could go back and do it all over, knowing what I know now, I would do it differently. He thought he was right, but this encounter with Jesus proved otherwise. And maybe you've been there before in your life. Maybe you thought you were right about something and it turned out you were wrong. Maybe it's something as simple as you, you never wanted to listen to this certain band because of the genre of music they were. And someone said, no, I, you'll like them. I know you will. It's like a little kid that doesn't want to try new food. As a parent, how many times have you said, you will like this. Try this. Like, how do you know you don't like it if you won't try it? I'm looking at you in the front row, okay? How do you know you won't like it if you haven't tried it, okay? We can live life that way even as adults, even as Christians, even as people who are imperfect and sinful, like we think we know what we don't know. We act on this thing that we kind of perceive to be true, but it turns out it's not. So maybe you've been there. Maybe you've judged someone by their appearance. 
Like, just by how someone looks, you automatically know, oh, I'm not going to like them. Oh, you know, they're not as smart as me. Oh, they're not as good as me, right? Maybe, we, maybe you've done that before. I think we've all been there. Maybe you made an assumption about someone based on one interaction with them. Maybe it was even like someone else having an interaction. You're kind of watching their body language. You're like, yeah, I don't like that person. Like, just like that. We think we're right. We think we know, but we don't know. We think we're right, but we're probably wrong. Um, maybe you've believed something that you've been told based on one side of a conversation, and then when more things come to light, you're like, well, that wasn't correct. I, I missed that. And maybe you've even spread certain things about certain people at certain times because of a half-truth or a partial thing or a part of a story that you kind of heard from someone else from somewhere, and then you go ahead and just, yeah, let's just broadcast that everywhere, and let's post that everywhere, right? So, and then you find out, oh, well, there was stuff there that I wasn't aware of that now I, I need to kind of reel that back in. So we've, we've kind of sometimes all been there in different ways. Maybe you did the right thing, but it was for the wrong reasons, or maybe, like Saul, you did what you know now, now know is the wrong thing, and you thought it was for the right reasons. We've all been in some of these different types of situations where we think we are right. Maybe spiritually you can relate to Saul here as well. Maybe you, in your life, had resisted Jesus because of a stereotype of Christians. Man, if I get saved, i got to handle snakes now, and I don't really want to do that, you know? Or man, if I become a Christian, I got to wear like ankle-length skirts. I got to pull my hair up in a bun. Like I got to talk in King James all the time. Like I'm not doing that. I'm not signed up for that. And then what happens is you actually meet a normal Christian and you're like, oh, oh, they're, they're normal people. Like my neighbor is a Christian. I didn't, you know, I didn't realize that they're just a normal person who just happens to love Jesus. Or maybe like Saul, you had this misconception of Jesus in your mind or of church or of Christianity in your mind. And then maybe you met Jesus. And you discover, oh, wow, God doesn't hate me. Oh, wow, God, God does judge me for my sin, but he wants to rescue me from my sin and made a way for me to be rescued from my sin. I, I misunderstood this all along. I, I didn't see it clearly. I thought I was right, but maybe like Saul, you discovered, oh, you know what? I'm going to give this a shot. And Jesus changed your life. So we've been there. Saul's been there. As, as Jesus opened Saul's spiritual eyes, he saw the truth of the gospel, and it changed his life. That leads to the second part of Saul's origin story that we'll spend just a couple minutes on, and that was this. Saul thought he was only persecuting Christians. It's kind of an interesting thought here, but he thought he was only persecuting Christians. Remember, he's persecuting the followers of the way. That's what they, that was their title before Christians kind of became the moniker of followers of Jesus. They're followers of the way. It's always saying this morning, you're the way, the truth, the life. But when Jesus stops him on the road in the middle of the day with a blinding light, he doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my followers? He says, why are you persecuting me? So what Jesus does here is he subtly reveals to Saul a powerful truth about the followers of Jesus, which Paul would write about later. It become a focal point of how he explains many things about how the church operates. One of the key ones here is 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 and 13. Paul writes later on, as Paul, right, the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free, but we've all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. Jesus sees his followers as his body. It's the continuation of him, the continuation of what he started. 
an extension of him, an extension of what he started. That's what the church is. You are, we are, the body of Christ. And that was a revolutionary idea that Saul is starting to learn here from his first interaction with Jesus in this vision. Why are you persecuting me, Jesus says. Some people um, will poo-poo the idea of a personal relationship with Jesus. Say, oh, you don't ask Jesus into your heart. And again, it's a bunch of semantics and a bunch of denominational stuff that I just kick the door down. I don't care. Just get people to Jesus. But don't underestimate the personal nature of the relationship with Jesus. That's how he wants it. That's how he designed it. He wants that relationship with you. Like, not just this idea or philosophy, but a relationship with him. That's what he wants. And with that means that, as an extension of him, that you and I are the only version of Jesus people will see. As an extension, as a continuation of who he is, as his body, we are the only version of Jesus. Unless they have this kind of vision that, that Saul had, which can happen, unless they have a dream about Jesus and he appears to them, which can happen. Other than that, you and I are it. So may we take that seriously, this personal relationship that we have and this interconnected relationship together that we have to be an extension and continuation of Jesus is a powerful thing. And we know that this personal aspect of it, this intimacy that Christ wants with each of us, is his desire because the night he's betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying, and that's one of his points of emphasis in his prayer. His final prayer before he's brutally beaten and murdered the next morning is this, John 17, let's start it up at verse number 20, John 17, 20. Again, in agony, anticipating his soon coming death, he says this to his father, I am praying not only for these disciples, the, the 11 that are with him, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us, so that the world will believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. You see how that's all interconnected, the relational aspect of Jesus with his people? He says, God, you and me, I and you, I and them. You and me. I mean, it just goes all connected together. That's how Jesus wants it. A special personal bond with his followers. And so that's why when the church was attacked, Jesus felt attacked. That's why even though his, he, he's already suffered and risen, so he's not feeling that, but he is because his people are feeling that. They're being attacked. He feels attacked. That's how it works even now with your relationship with Jesus in your own life. When you hurt, Jesus feels that. Like when you question things, Jesus is like, man, I need to guide them and help them, right? The Holy Spirit needs to help them because I, he, he feels that. When you're attacked for your faith, same as in Acts 9, Jesus feels that. He knows what it's like more than we will ever know what it's like to suffer for our faith, for what we say, what we believe. When you're wronged, Jesus feels that. And then when you feel joy, Jesus feels that too. He's like, I want to feel that more often, you know. But he feels what we feel. Don't overlook that. Don't underestimate the personal connection with Jesus. 
the intimate nature of a relationship with him. Don't live your life thinking, well, Jesus doesn't know how I feel. He does. Or he can't relate. He can. Or, you know, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't know. He, he does. He does. He understands better than we realize, and he feels it even now. Whatever you're experiencing, he sympathizes with you in that. He's with you in your struggle. He's with you in your cares, because he feels it, just like he said to Paul in Acts 9. So Saul only thought he was persecuting Christians, but it was much deeper than that. And he experienced the flip side joy of that later on. Here's the last thing that we'll look at for a few minutes. The third thing that Saul thought that was wrong is Saul thought he had a plan for his life. Saul thought he had a plan for his life. So later on, again in Acts 26, he's on trial before a Roman official and a Jewish official retelling this story. The reason I want to read this is we're, a lot of it's going to seem like a repeat of Acts 9 that we started with, but he gives other details at the end of what we read in Acts 9 that really focus in on that I thought I had things figured out, I thought I had a direction and a plan, and Jesus changed all of that for the better. Acts 26, start at verse 12. We'll read this and look at the extra stuff here at the end as Paul retells his story. One day I was on such a mission to Damascus, armed with the authority and commission of the leading priests. About noon, your majesty, as I was on the road, a light from heaven brighter than the sun shone down on me and my companions. We all fell down, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is useless for you to fight against my will. Who are you, Lord, I asked. And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get to your feet. Here's the key part that we don't see in Acts 9. For I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness. Tell people that you have seen me and tell them what I will show you in the future. And I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. On the way to arrest Christians, on the way to persecute Christians in Damascus, Saul thought he had a plan for his life, and he thought he was executing the plan perfectly. He was fulfilling God's will for his life. But Jesus had a different plan for Paul, for Saul. He says, I'm going to appoint you as my servant. Wait, no, 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 no. I'm trying to kill your followers. I'm trying to get you out of the history books. But I, you're, you're my servant, my witness, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. Like, it's one thing to try to stop these kind of Jews that are making trouble, believing in this false Messiah. But now I'm going to go to the, the outsider Gentiles and tell them about, like, I'm so confused now. What you're asking me to do does not make any sense. I have a plan. It's a great plan. I like the plan. I'm working the plan, and I don't need this new plan. But Jesus had a different plan. And in the future life and ministry of Saul or Paul, it's not the last time that his plans would get changed. As we'll see later on in Acts 16, there are several times where they can't get entry into this city. And even, he even says, as Luke writes, the spirit of Jesus prevented us from going this way to lead us here. And there was always a purpose behind it. In Acts 19, Saul or Paul is staying in Ephesus for an extended period of time. A riot breaks out that kind of forces him to leave town a little sooner than maybe he had planned. His plans changed over and over and over. And then in Acts 27, there's a storm at sea and a shipwreck. That's obviously going to change Saul or Paul's plans. So over and over again, this is a theme in the life of Saul. And maybe you've experienced this too. You ever had your plans changed before? You ever had a flight canceled or delayed? 
Maybe even something like a traffic jam getting to work changed your plan. Uh, Maybe it's a job change that you're going through or have gone through, and you're like, wait, that's not part of the plan. Well, maybe it is. Maybe a diagnosis changed certain things about a plan that you thought you were going to have or a trajectory that you thought you were headed toward. Maybe it's an opportunity that was right in front of you and you were about ready to accept that opportunity and rug pulled out from under you out of nowhere. No, 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 that was the plan. That was where we were going to go. That was perfect. Everything was set up and success was right there and now it's gone. So maybe you can relate to where Saul has been. We think we, think we have so much control over our lives. We think we have so much control over our plans. But here's what Proverbs tells us. Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Another way to say that is this. You may have a plan, but God has a purpose. You may have a plan, like Saul did, but God has a purpose. And it may just cut your plans into pieces. It may blow them to bits, but we have to trust. I may have a plan, but God has a purpose. Because here's the thing. I love you, but your plan might be terrible, you know? Like, your plan might just be awful. And so Jesus lovingly, boom, blows it up because it's best for you that he blows up that plan. Sometimes your plans just don't work. Like maybe it was an okay plan or whatever, but it just fell through. A a key detail didn't happen like you planned, and it just falls through, or it it just, something happens to blow that up. And so no matter how great our plans may seem, God's purpose is always better. No matter how certain we are that this is the plan, I want God's purpose to supersede my plan. So think about this. There's a few people we'll mention in Scripture. Noah had a plan. His plan was, I just kind of got to get through this terrible life that's around me. I'm like the only faithful follower in this one true God, and we're the only family that's committed. We're just going to kind of suffer and live through it and push through it and maybe make a difference, and then we'll just die. But God had a purpose. No, I'm going to flood the earth. Your purpose is now to build an ark to save your family. That's different. No, that wasn't Noah's plan. My plan is not to build this boat with my three boys for 300 plus years, and then we're going to start over. That's not, but that was God's purpose. You think about Moses. He had a plan. He grew up in Egypt, but then he left, and he's just, now my plan is, you know, I've got wife, I've got kids, I'm, I'm, I'm a shepherd, living an easy life, doing the, you know, just doing my thing. I'm just going to live out here in the wilderness and, and be fine. But God said, no, no, I've got a purpose that's going to supersede your plan. And so through the burning bush, he says, no, you're going to go back to Egypt, and you're going to deliver a million slaves from Egyptian bondage. Moses had a plan. God had a purpose. And then you think about 2,000 years ago, a young teenage girl named Mary had a plan, newly engaged. We're going to start a life. Me and Joe are going to start this life together. We're going to have kids, and we're going to raise them to serve our one true God, and we're just going to live a normal carpenter family life. But God had a purpose. So he sent an angel to her to say, hey, whoa, 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 I, got, uh, I know this is going to sound crazy. I know you got a plan that's very, you know, no one's going to ever know who you are with your plan. But guess what? God's purpose is bigger than your plan. You're going to give birth to the Son of God. That changed her plans quite a bit, I would think, from what she thought she was going to do. Joseph then, the same thing. Now that Mary's plan has changed, he doesn't know if he's on board with the plan he was on. So he's going to change his plans because, well, now I can't marry her. I've got to divorce her. I've got my reputation to think about, my family's reputation to think about. So this, I've got to now change plans. The angel comes and says, no, 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 no. We're going to do that plan because it's God's purpose. 
You see how that works? People have plans. God has a purpose. You might have a plan. God has a purpose. Your plan may have failed and you feel like a failure. God still has a purpose. You might be questioning what the plan is. I've got like three or four options here. I don't know what to do. I'm so confused. I'm so distraught. I'm not sure if I don't make God has a purpose. We can breathe. We can calm down because God is in control. He has a purpose. Paul later on, as he writes Romans 8, 28, as we close, Paul says it this way. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. So the everything is your plan, right? He's going to cause those to work for his purpose. Because sometimes when your plan doesn't work, we see, usually, typically, we see that negatively. Oh, no, I failed, or oh, no, God failed, or oh, no, that what's, what's the next step, and this is not what I thought was going to happen, and I'm completely distraught, I'm completely frustrated, I'm completely agonizing over the next step, and what do I do, and where do I go, and who do I talk to? God has a purpose. And so we see it negatively, and sometimes it's negative things that happen that change our plans. Like we said earlier, it might be a diagnosis that we don't want that changes our plans because maybe God has a purpose behind that. Maybe that, neg- maybe that diagnosis is going to lead you to people you would never have connected with that need to know about him. Even something as simple as, you know, I can't find my keys, I'm going to be late to work, that's messing up my plan, and then you find out, and now I'm stuck in traffic because there was an accident right when I would have gone through that intersection. Like, God has a purpose, despite what your plans might be or what your plans didn't do. God has a purpose above and beyond those plans. The question is, will we trust him with that? Maybe it wasn't a business opportunity with this person that you just kind of met, and it falls through. It doesn't happen. You're like, oh, I missed out, and it was the perfect timing, and this plan was going to work. And then you find him on the you know, front page of the news for tax fraud. You're like, well, I dodged a bullet there, didn't I? Thanks, God, you know, for not help, having that thing work out, having not, my plan not work out like I thought it was going to. It can be any number of things that we don't expect or don't see, but God has a purpose. So do you have plans? You might. Is it wrong to have plans? No, but our prayer should always be, God, I want your purpose to prevail, your ultimate plan to prevail, because our plans aren't foolproof. Our plans can change. Our plans can fail, but God's purpose will never change. His purpose will never fail. And his purpose is always for your good. It may not seem like it at times or feel like it at times. You may, not, you may sense nothing positive happening right now, but trust the process of God's purpose, even when your plans fall through. Saul did not see God's purpose coming. It, as a, literally, it's the middle of the day, so the sun's already out. But this light, he says, brighter than the sun, knocked him on the ground. Jesus appeared to him and spoke to him, and then his life plan totally changed because he had new purpose. So when it comes to our lives, it's not about us thinking we're right. It's about following Jesus. As we do that, remember that you're an extension of Jesus in that. And remember that whatever thing you have going on, whatever plans in the works, whatever next steps you might have, that's fine. Go, you know, the Lord will lead you in that. But if he detours, may we just say, God, whatever your purpose is, is ultimately what I want. I want your good for your glory. And so I hope that we can see the extreme life change that Saul had here. And may we say, okay, God, whatever you have, whatever I think, it's not what I think, it's what you think. Whatever my plans are, it's not my plan, it's your purpose. May we see Saul's origin story here and live out God's perfect purpose for each of our lives. Let's pray. God, my prayer today is that we would be 
encouraged and inspired by Saul's origin story. And we picked it up in the middle of an action sequence, but there's more to get him to that point uh, emotionally, uh, mentally, spiritually, that led him to this intersection on this road. And like Saul, may we realize that's not our life is not just about being right. It's not about uh, our assumptions proving to be true or accurate. It's I don't have to have it all together. I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have to have it all figured out. But Jesus can help me. May we understand that it's not really about us, but about our connection to you. And may we understand that it's not about our plans, but your purpose. In our darkest of moments, may we trust that you're working all things out for our good according to your purpose for them. May we realize that it's, it's your purpose that prevails. Many are the plans that we have, but your purpose prevails. And if you need to knock us down like Saul once in a while to get our attention, if you need to maybe crush our plans and, and we're just so distraught, do that. We, we believe you're sovereign. You can do whatever you want. Help us to be more open and available and willing for you to work in those moments and through those moments. May we just be open to all you have for us. Really to, to say your will be done. Just as Jesus said, in his greatest moment of need, his greatest moment of weakness, his greatest moment of fear, he said, not my will but yours be done. Help us to do that so then we can make a difference in the world that you want us to just like Saul. The impact that this man had from this day forward changed the world. We are recipients of what you did on the road to Damascus in this man's life. May we have a similar experience and impact as we follow your will for our lives. Help us do that as we leave this place today, even today, even this week, to look for those opportunities to serve you and follow you closer and closer to make a difference every single day. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.